We uh, have been working our way slowly but surely through uh, Paul's epistle to the Ephesians and find ourselves this morning in uh, chapter 2 and we will be looking at verses 11 through 22. Unless you're steeped in Old Testament, this, uh, this section is a little bit confusing. And so, uh, if you get a little lost in the reading of it, uh, please don't panic. I'll do what I can to smooth the road for you a little bit in the sermon. Uh, but it's important, because there was a, uh, there was a rift uh, that was, uh, well, not developing. It had always been there in the Ephesian church and in the early church in general. And uh, Paul addresses it here in a very uh, specific way. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to you who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together in a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Paul mentions much here that uh, is outside of our own experience and uh, common language. We recognize that uh, some of us are more attuned to what he's alluding to than others. And yet you have determined that it will be profitable for us in this time and in this place. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would grant us an understanding of these things as they pertain to us now, understanding historically what it meant as well as what it means for us in this day to embrace its truth and to live it out before the world. Grant us these things. May he take us up now and grant us a vision of those things which you have taught through the Apostle Paul, to the ages. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Uh, this uh, past week, uh, my daughter, my youngest daughter, Molly, was home, and uh, she was uh, reading a book. And it was a famous book, if you're familiar with much of uh, American literature. It's Black Like Me. And, uh, and I asked her if it was any good. She said, oh, yeah. She said, it's really good. And I'd remembered it, you know, just vaguely from about 50 years ago when I was in high school. And uh, so I, I picked it up. And it was really good. And so I, I gave it a, a quick read this week. And, uh, and it's a really a rather extraordinary story if you're not uh, familiar with it. It's, it's the account of a white author in the South. Uh, basically, he was, in, he was living in Texas at the time, and uh, he was really concerned with, uh, with racial prejudice in the United States, uh, most uh, commonly seen in the South, and he wondered what it would be like if he were to experience that prejudice as a black man. Now, he, at the time, considered himself a specialist in race issues. He'd been involved in the, uh, in the movement for, uh, for freedom and all of that, was uh, well acquainted with, uh, with many of the, uh, the black and the white uh, uh, people who were working uh, for, uh, for racial reconciliation and equality. Uh, and yet, it was, he, was, he was plagued by the fact that he was white. And he would never really be able to know what it was like until he hit on the idea of being black for a while. And that is precisely what he determined he would do. And he went and he found a dermatologist in um, uh, New Orleans. In New Orleans. And this dermatologist <coughs> turned his skin black by giving him some, uh, some uh, medicine to take, exposing him to ultraviolet light and those places that weren't quite up to snuff, he used stain. Okay? And over the course of a couple of weeks, he literally went from being a white man to being a black man. And during this time, he sort of hid out in, in a friend's house and uh, tried to just make the transition. And then he, he had to deal with the, how am I going to enter black society? But he found it amazingly easy. And the story basically encompasses his, uh, his several weeks as a black man in the South, moving from one city to another in the Deep South. And the kinds of things that he encountered were really quite extraordinary. And uh, it got to the point where he was, uh, uh, he was so hopeless and so despairing because of the, the prejudice and the segregation and the degraded living conditions that, that he and other blacks were uh, uh, forced to live in and, uh, and live under, that he finally decided that his, his uh, time uh, was complete, and, uh, and he went and reversed the process and uh, uh, returned to white society. And uh, during this whole time, of course, he'd taken these notes uh, from which uh, this book was written. And it is, quite frankly, an astonishing tale, and I commend it to you if uh, you want to have any understanding of what it is like for a white man suddenly to become black in this country and to give you uh, some really um, unique perspectives on it. Uh, it, is, it is well worth uh, your time and effort. But of course, prejudice and bigotry isn't limited to the United States. It wasn't limited to the 1950s or 60s or even today. Uh, it has inhabited the heart of man uh, since the fall. And we can look around and see literally across the world uh, examples of uh, racial prejudice uh, in every uh, time and place.
Uh, which of us alive now does not remember the Hutus and the Tutsis killing one another, slurring one another in Africa? Tribal, tribal conflict. The Chinese and the Japanese, as nations, have never had any love for one another. Everywhere you look, you can find this kind of racial prejudice. I think one of the things that struck me the most about the Iraq War was not the war itself, but the civil war between the Sunnis and the Shiites. This religious tension, this conflict within Islam. You cannot look anywhere, but you will see the effects of racial bigotry and prejudice, whether it's racial or economic or or educational or social. We have this seed within each of our hearts. And the context here in Ephesians, in the early church, is precisely that. You had a basically Jewish church, because they were the first to hear the gospel, and the first ones to respond, suddenly having all these Gentiles coming into the church. They had the same problem in Rome, same problem in Ephesus, just about everyone Paul wrote to. And what you have here is Paul addressing that because he recognizes that it's a real problem. Now you'll remember from, uh, from verses 1 to 10 that he had just laid out, listen, we all came the same way, right? We were all sinners, dead in our trespasses and sins from the womb. And it was the grace of God and the grace of God alone which saved us. There's nothing special about us, nothing special about our works, our deeds, anything, our background to commend us to God. He saved us by grace through faith. And he did that, he ends up in verse 10, by saying, he did it because we are his workmanship and we've been created in Christ Jesus for good works that he's prepared that we should go and do. The question is, how does a divided church, in this case, the Jews and the Gentiles, how does a divided church Go and do God's good works. Paul recognizes that you can't do it as a divided church. You have to be united as one. And so here he takes up the very problem of this this disunity, this, this racial bigotry and prejudice that existed. And he wants them to deal with it as properly as they can. And he lays it out, as he always does, in a very... Um, a logical way, he begins by reminding them what the problem is. And then he tells them what God's solution to that problem is, and then he, he blesses them by saying, and this is the result of God's actions in that regard. So we're going to proceed in that same way uh, and begin by looking at the problem, which of course is prejudice. And we find that laid out beautifully in verses 11 and 12. Now, as I mentioned, this this disunity in the Ephesian church was primarily between the Jews and the Gentiles. And it was really well documented on on the Jewish side. Uh, We are more familiar with that than uh, than than we are from the Gentile side. You'll remember we uh, we studied Jonah uh, last year. And one of the things about Jonah was uh, he was a bigot too. I mean, he did not want to go to Nineveh. Not because he was afraid of Nineveh, but because Nineveh was full of Gentiles. And the last thing that Jonah wanted to do was go to Nineveh and preach God's grace 
to people who might repent and actually receive the blessing and forgiveness of God that at this point had just been the Jews, you know, little domain, shall we say. And you know, as well as I do, that it took a lot for him to go. And when he finally went and he preached and everybody repented, the entire city repented, Jonah's attitude is still greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry because God in his grace and compassion forgave Gentiles. Okay? That, that is the pervasive Jewish opinion of Gentiles. Anybody outside the nation of Israel was scum or worse. As a matter of fact, there were pervading ideas that just, they're perfect examples of it. Some Jews really believed, now this is true, some Jews really believed that God created Gentiles as fuel for hell. Okay? Fuel for hell. Now you think about that. Some believed that he loved Israel only and every other nation he hated. And so many Jewish women, they did not want to give a Gentile woman any aid in childbearing for fear that they would actually contribute to a Gentile coming into the world. They want to be part of that. When a Jew entered Palestine, he would literally shake the Gentile dust off of his sandals and off of his clothes, lest he pollute the land. And if you were a young Jewish man or woman, and you wanted to marry a Gentile, you know what your family did? They didn't hold a wedding. They held a funeral service. Because that funeral service was to demonstrate to the entire community that as far as they were concerned, to the family, to the nation, you were dead, dead, dead. And for fear of contamination, Jews would very often never even enter a Gentile's house, nor have one come into theirs. So as far as Jews were concerned, even the believing Jews of Ephesus and Rome and elsewhere, these Gentiles were aliens. They were from outer space. They, they, were, they didn't want to have anything to do with them. And in fact, Paul lays out five things about the Gentiles here that made them aliens. He says, you are separate from Christ. You are excluded from citizenship in Israel. You are foreigners to the covenants of promise. You are without hope, and you are without God in the world. And you are not circumcised either. See, in the mind of the Jew, there, there was just no greater gulf that could possibly exist between them and the Gentiles. It couldn't be more complete. Now, there are, of course, great dangers inherent in being alienated from one another, no matter what the reason, and no matter what the age. Because alienation breaks the covenant of commitment that we are to have in the Church of Christ to love one another from the heart, to be gracious and kind and good to one another, to serve one another. 
Of course, what happens when you're alienated from somebody is the first thing you have to do is you have to set yourself up as a superior. Right? Isn't that true? I'm really the one that's better in this. I really, I have the high ground, the moral high ground, so to speak. And it's only so to speak because we know in fact it's not. Because that attitude is just as sinful as it can be. But it just drives this wedge between us and others. And when we do that, it produces a rank hypocrisy. Doesn't it? Because what do we do? We proclaim that we love God and we love his people and we even love those outside of the church. But in fact, we're living with these prejudices, with this desire not to be in contact, not to go near, not to be intimate with certain people for whatever reason. And the scriptures tell us clearly that that will destroy not only our intimacy with one another, but it destroys our intimacy with God because we cannot love the Father whom we have not seen if we don't love those whom we do see. And that's a real problem. Paul moves on now in verses 13 to 18, and he looks at God's solution to the problem, and he reads it this way. He says, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away, speaking specifically now to the Gentiles, have been brought near. And then he goes on to talk about how God has done that. And he says, God has done two things. He says, first, he's torn down this barrier that exists between you and the Jews. And secondly, he says, he's made the two of you one new man. Now, both of those bear looking at briefly. First, he says that God made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Now, what's he doing here? Well, he's using Old Testament imagery that these people would have been really familiar with because they would have gone to the temple and they would have known that in the temple there was a wall, a barrier, a literal physical barrier beyond which Gentiles were not allowed to go. They could come into the outer court, but they could not pass that barrier, literally, under penalty of death. Remember that Paul got got in trouble with Timothy, right? When he took him beyond the barrier. But the only reason that Paul uses that imagery is because what he wants to do is say that that physical barrier that existed in the temple is illustrative, really, of this barrier of hostility that exists between you as Jews and Gentiles. And then he goes on to say what it is that needed to be torn down, what this barrier was. And it's astonishing. He says, it is a ceremonial law. He said, it is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. In other words, the feasts, the sacrifices, all the rites of purification, everything that God had given to the Jew to separate him as a people, as a nation from the Gentiles, all of that was a barrier. It was a barrier to fellowship because it was part of what they prided themselves in keeping. And Paul says, God tore that down when Jesus Christ fulfilled every requirement of the law, both ceremonial and moral, and then went to the cross 
and died in our place. And that he abolished the ceremonial law at that point so that it should no longer be an issue between you, should no longer separate you in any way from those around you. Paul goes on to say he tore this barrier down for a very specific reason. He says that in himself, verse 15, he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. During World War II, there was a a group of American soldiers who lost a buddy in battle, and and they wanted to do the right thing by by giving him a decent burial. And they, they had time, because combat had ended, And so they looked around and they happened to find a cemetery. And they determined that they would bury him there. And as they started to dig the grave, a priest came along and uh, and they told him what they were doing. And and, uh, he said, uh, tell me about him. And uh, the priest found out that the man was not Catholic. And he said, well, I'm sorry, you can't bury him here. And I mean, the soldiers were just taken aback. They didn't know what to think, what to do. But they gathered up his body and they left. And they tried to figure out what to do. And under cover of night, they did what they thought was the next best thing, which is they brought him back and they buried him just outside the fence that surrounded the cemetery. And they went away, had a rest of a night's sleep, and came back the next morning to pay their final respects before they pulled out. And they looked everywhere. They could not find a grave outside the fence. Couldn't find it anywhere. And the priest came by. And they, they said, they told him what the problem was. And he said, oh, that. He said, um, he said well, I'll tell you. He said, I, I spent the first half of the night really sorry for what I said to you. He said, and I spent the rest of the night moving the fence. <laughs> to include their friend. When Jesus broke down the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh this enmity because of these ordinances, he moved the fence. He moved the fence so that he could create the peace and this one new man that God has in mind. Now, the Greek word for new here uh, doesn't refer to something that's uh, been recently completed, like a, a nice new car coming off the assembly line, of which there are probably 50 more coming off in the next hour. That's not the way this word new is used. This word new means unique, absolutely unique. There's never been one before, and there'll never be another one like it. In other words, the new person that God is creating is no longer Jew or Gentile, but Christian. You remember that he begins uh, in verse 11, he says, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, see, nothing before becoming Christian matters anymore. Your past doesn't matter. Your previous religion doesn't matter. Your previous actions, your nationality your economic status, none of that matters when you become Christ's. Because of the way we are uniquely joined to one another by that one sacrifice. 
It's interesting. When you look at Acts 15, you see the great first ecclesiastical council, often called the Jerusalem Council. And uh, their big concern, of course, was this, this very similar issue. How were Jews and Gentiles to be reconciled in their relationships to one another in the church? How were they going to act towards one another? And the Jerusalem Council acted with real wisdom, and they said, at bottom, this is what the Jewish believers need to do, and that is they need to be as absolutely inclusive of their Gentile brethren as they possibly can. Now there's a real, there's a good lesson here for us. Because whenever any church receives new members or new visitors or people coming in, there's always the tendency to say, this is how we are, and if you like us, you can stay, and if you don't like us, there's the door. When in fact, the challenge is always to be as embracive and inclusive of others as we possibly can. And to make sure that so far as it lies within us to do so, that we give them a place to serve, to grow in Christ, to be loved, to be discipled, and to act out what God is doing in their lives. That might mean changing the way we do things. And it certainly does mean not requiring them to be like we are. Now that's hard. Nevertheless, it's a wonderful challenge in today's church to do just that, to be inclusive, and at the same time to maintain those those standards of, of love, primarily, that God requires of his people. And now the result, Paul comes to in verses 19 to 22. Now so far, you'll, you'll remember that, that Paul has reminded the Christians at Ephesus that, you know what, there's a problem here. The problem is bigotry, and God has dealt with it in Jesus Christ. He's torn down everything that ought to lay between the two of you, and he has required of you to come towards one another, and he's made of you one new man. And now he begins to launch out, and he uses three quick pictures to talk about the effect of what it means for these, for these, these two disparate groups to live together as one people, as God's people. The first is his fellow citizens. You know, right after uh, 9-11, I don't know if you remember this commercial, but it was a, uh, basically it was not a commercial so much as a public service announcement. And the public service announcement began with uh, uh, de- identifying different uh, Americans as Americans. And uh, the first person was a, was a, a dark-haired uh, Native American woman with a shawl over her. And, uh, and she looks right in the camera and she says, I am an American. And the next is a, uh, is a guy in a cowboy hat with Hispanic features and dark eyes and a mustache. And he's clearly Hispanic. And he says, I am an American. And the third one is a, is a sort of a, a ruddy-faced guy with, a, with a, uh, a fire helmet on. He's a fireman. And uh, he's got sort of a reddish-tinted hair sticking out from underneath it. And in something of an Irish lilt, he says, I am an American. And last but not least, there's a man with a turban 
dark chiseled features, dark skin, obviously Arabic. And he says, I am an American. Of course, the the public service announcement was meant to demonstrate that deeper than any of the prejudices of of nationality or skin color or uh, dress, it's the simple truth that we are all one, if you will, we're all citizens of the same country. I am an American. And that's precisely what Paul says here. We are fellow citizens, one another with the saints. Fellow citizens of the kingdom of God, purchased by the blood of his own son. We are, king, we are children of the king. Immediately, he springs off on another one. He says, we're of Christ's household. Now, I don't know about you, but one of the things I like best about being in a household is that I can be who I am. I'm not always who I am in front of you, although you think I am. This is part of me. But my family really gets to see me how I am. They see me when I kick back. They see me when I screw up. They see me when I fly off the handle, which is not very often. Nevertheless, I can be who I am in my home. And Paul says here that, you know what? We are to treat one another as brothers and sisters, as fathers, as mothers. In fact, he tells Timothy that very thing, doesn't he? He says, treat older women as your mother, and treat older men as your father, and treat those who are your same age as your brother and your sister. In the intimacy of a family household, a relationship. Now, Paul obviously never had freshman English because he mixes his metaphors wickedly here, and now he moves on to talk about a building with foundations and a cornerstone. And he says... In verses 20 to 22, he says, Having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. What a, what a fabulous image. Now, if, if you were to just take a minute, in fact, I read a commentator who suggested that you, you consider doing this. Imagine Jesus Christ as the cornerstone, just just glowing with the vitality that only God can have. And then, building out from him this, this foundation of the apostles and the prophets, their teaching of the word of God, and the effect that that cornerstone has on them is the same. They begin to glow too. He says, now imagine all of these stones being set next to the cornerstone and on top of the foundation, and they begin to glow one by one by one by one as each are being built into this this magnificent building that is vibrating with life and beauty and glory. I mean, that's essentially the picture that Paul is trying to draw here. That there's something magnificent that God is doing. We, we, we see through a mirror so darkly, so dimly when we, we live in a fallen world and yet there is a hint the beauty and glory of what God is doing as he calls his people out from the world and prepares them to be, as he says here, a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Brethren, I know that it's fair to say that you're as happy as I am that uh, 
Uh, winter is technically over. Spring is technically here. And uh, yet if you had visited my home, uh, say, a month or so ago, and driven in my driveway, literally I had snow piled up on each side of my driveway, nearly six foot high from shoveling all that snow. And snow is really an amazing thing when you think about it. Right, isn't it? Each flake is one of the most fragile creations of God. Aren't they? They're just so fragile. And yet, when they're packed together, right, they're really something to deal with. So it is with the people of God that we are his special, unique creation. And, and together, there is a power and grace and dignity and vitality about our place in his working out the furtherance of his kingdom through Jesus Christ that we are privileged to be a part of. It is a beautiful thing, brethren. And Paul called the Jews and the Gentiles of his day to live without prejudice and bigotry so far as it lay within them to do so and to embrace those gifts and workings of God to that end. And I encourage you to do the same. Let's pray. Now, Father, we are uh, we're so grateful that by your Spirit you continue to bring out of uh, texts like this that, that seem complicated and, uh, and a little bit dense to us. Um, things that are incredibly relevant to who we are and where we live. Thank you for giving us the best of both of you into times past and the problems that existed then and what you did and the fact that all of that has application to us and to our day. Most importantly, Lord, grant to us by your spirit an ever-increasing willingness to confront bigotry and prejudice wherever we find it in our souls, wherever we find it in our families and churches, that we might, for the sake and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, do all that we can to represent this new man that you have made us to be and to live in genuine peace with those around us, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.